This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 54 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. Network. And today we have one of my favorite interviews to date. It's with trainer Bob Baffert, the trainer of Triple Crown winner American Pharaoh. And we also have Mitchell Bornstein, a fascinating author of, of a book called The Last Chance Mustang. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thank you for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month. And I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Hello. I'm so excited about the show. Me too. Me too. too. We've been teasing like crazy, so it's about time we let everybody in on this secret. Um, It's a wonderful um, look into Bob Baffert's relationship with American Pharaoh, don't you think? I think – and. It's really kind of neat. Oh, goosebumps. Um, because American Pharaoh did something that nobody's been able to do for 40 years, first of all. Yeah. So right there, legendary horse. Yeah. But beyond his prowess as an athlete, I think American Pharaoh, the personality, the horse, I think had a really unique effect on his trainer as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, such an effect on the whole United States, really, in the in the racing industry. I could throw it in as a lump, but we actually had a unique situation in him winning the Grand Slam as well as the Triple Crown because that wasn't available, as I understand, forty years ago or thirty-seven years ago when the last Triple Crown right. was was right. won. Yeah, yeah there was no Breeders' they, Cup. Right. They didn't have the Breeders' Cup included in that. That's right. So for him to come back, what? Um, a show of generosity, I think, on the part of this team, and what a show of dominance by this um, amazing athlete called American Pharaoh. Yeah, it's really exciting, and and we get to hear the the person behind the sunglasses. That we, yeah, that we, you know that we see every summer on on the TV set. So, because he's he's always been someone who's in the no in the news on the mm-hmm. TV, but yeah. you don't really know him. You know, he's a he's a very very private person that way. And it's, it's so fascinating to get to know him just, just that little bit. Yeah. Yeah. For me, he's always been an iconic character, that shock white hair and those dark, those ever present dark glasses striding around with confidence in, in his medium. He really is in his medium, but like, like anything that's uh, so difficult to achieve, uh, it must've been so hard to win all those other um, Kentucky Derbies, all those other achievements, and not get that one crowning jewel that is so elusive for all trainers, really. But for for Bob, it must have been such a. Um, I just hope he doesn't go, doesn't retire now. It must have been such a capper, <laughs> capper to what a wonderful career. But everybody dreams of that, you know. Every 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 horse owner that that trains a thoroughbred or owns a partnership in a thoroughbred or a part of a little syndicate of a thoroughbred dreams that they'd win the Kentucky Derby. But very few are on the uh, the clouds that can even dream of uh, being a part of a team of the Triple Crown. So I, you know, 
you've got to listen to the relationship that he had with this horse and and know that his heart was just so full at Christmas time here, holidays, and and uh, his family around him. So um, let's let everybody in on this one, huh, Jen? Yeah, and our other guest that we have today, yeah. no less fascinating because I think the sense of achievement, the sense of satisfaction – when when you get to hear what Mitch Bornstein has to say, very it's it's almost the polar opposite of Bob Baffert and American Pharaoh. Here we have someone who's who's a trainer in the middle of America that the world is completely unaware of, mm-hmm. and a horse again just as anonymous. Yet the achievement I think is no less astonishing. It's true. That's that's a great juxtaposition. I appreciate that. And I think Mitch would agree with you that nothing um, was public about this and there were no, there were no, no accolades. Cameras. He was no cameras, no. no accolades, no big paycheck at the end of this or anything. He did it for the total love of Mustang. Yeah. So uh, let's hear from uh, IFA.com and then we will hear from Mitch. Wonderful. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, He's a sugar bear. (laughs) You know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament, and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at IFA.com. That's IFA as an Index Fund Advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. College, law school, and 19 years as a practicing attorney have not stood in the way as Mitch Mitchell Bornstein followed his passion and the one true calling he had, which was to save horses that no one else would. Horse trainer, clinician, CEO, and head trainer at the Art of Horsemanship, Inc. He was an off, he is the author of The Last Chance Mustang, the story of a one horse, one man, and one final shot at redemption. He has rehabilitated hundreds of mistreated or unmanageable horses, including racehorses, neglected horses, unbreakable, and abused horses. For Mitchell, There is no such thing as a bad horse or a steed beyond repair. Mitch lives and works in Wheeling, Illinois. Welcome, Mitch Bornstein. I'm so happy to have you on the show as author of Last Chance Mustang. How are you today? I'm doing fine, and thank you so much for having us here. Where are you calling from right now? Where are we we listening to you? I am just outside the Chicago area in the suburbs of Chicago, about 30, 40 minutes north of Chicago. Yeah, and uh, you you are full time training horses now, is that right? I am full time. I still I'm still a practicing attorney. I try and balance the two, but certainly with uh, with the book coming out and everything, demand has definitely popped up even more than it was. So it's it's become quite difficult to balance it all. But yeah, pretty much you know eighty ninety percent of my time right now is dealt with trying to cater to my horse clients for sure. 
That's awesome. Well, that's awesome because you are a talented man based on what I read in Last Chance Mustang. It's a wonderful, um, I can't call it a novel because it's a true story. So, um, and it's not really your autobiography because it really is just a true story about you and a relationship with Samson, this uh, Mustang that you now call Last Chance. But, he, but uh, I mean, can I give away the end and say that I think the cover kind of gives it away. He's He's in your lap, basically. So we we know that he, he's doing just fine and seems to love you. Uh, you're 20 years as a horse trainer. What do you think most prepared you for a horse like Samson? I, you know, honestly, I, the only thing I could say is experience. You know, it, it, it's really. I think I think I may have said it in the book. I've definitely said in interviews that if I had met Samson 20 years ago, I, I don't think I would have survived it, let alone been injured. I mean, it was. I just wouldn't have had the skills to do it. I think that 20 years of managing difficult horses and, and going up against them in a manner of speaking and, and watching their body language and their mannerisms and sort of learning when to back off and learning to pressure and learning when to call it a day. I think all that comes into play um, and, and reading certain signals. Certainly Samson is a pro at giving signals. Um, he doesn't always give you a warning, but I'd like to think sometimes he does. So, um, I think it's basic experience. I think it's hands-on experience, like any trainer would say. And I could say unconditionally, you know, thankfully I came across some, you know, at a certain point in my career, not earlier, because I, I don't think it would have gone well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how that happens in our lives when uh, the, the uh, student is ready, the teaching teacher appears, and Samson was your teacher, it sounds like, uh, in a lot of ways for this kind of level of uh, abuse that he took. Why did you set the scene for us um, in how you met Samson, real briefly? Sure. Samson was was at a property. He had um, ended up at a, at a home, at a barn, a uh, person's home after a fire and they sort of generously took him in and did not know what they were getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. And um, I was asked to come out and actually take a look at another horse. And it was probably, you know, the, the owner was probably angling it the whole time of, you know, we'll have Mitch come out and then we'll, you know, talk about the other one. And I was out to take a look at this other horse. And then it was sort of, by the way, um, there's a horse we have here and it can't even be outside. It's locked up. And um, it's, you know, he's just, a, he's a monster, you know, he's, Mm. flesh eating fire breathing monster yeah yeah complete and, uh, dragon they, dragon complete <laughs> dragon absolutely and they walked me in the barn and there was literally blood all over the inside of the barn from the battles mm-hmm. he had had with other creatures and with people and you know it's sort of like you walk in that situation and unfortunately i've been in that situation many many times before but you still kind of hold your breath and say to yourself what did you get yourself into and and there he was locked in a stall mm-hmm. and um locked away from the world. That was, as they put it, the only way to keep him safe and keep other people safe. He had just sort of fought himself into a stall, into a stall. So, mm-hmm. so that's where we found him. That was sort of the situation. And I was asked to really just take a look at him and see if anything that could be done with him. And then the, the journey started right at that moment. Yeah. What do you think happened in those, I guess at that point, he'd been six years in captivity after an adoption yeah. from the Bureau of Land Management. What do you think he went through? You know, we don't know. We we do know that he had several owners. We know of at least a few that he had, and we know that he was being used for stud. People were using him to produce, you know, Mustang offspring. Um, it's hard to know. We know some extent. I did have dealings with one of his previous owners who basically gave me the rules of trade with him, which were, you know, beat him over the head with a two-by-four. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allegedly came down from the owners prior. It was literally passed down from owner to owner to owner is what I was told in my communication. So, um, you can surmise just from that alone what his life was like. 
Uh, but certainly interacting with Samson and, and with 20 years of working with abused horses, you see certain common denominators. And I would say I saw things from Samson I'd never seen before, just flat out aggression, no social ability whatsoever. He hated dogs, he hated cats, he hated horses, and mm-hmm. he most certainly hated people. So um, you can only assume really what went on with him. He was never trained. He was never even halter broke. And I think that what happened was he was used for various purposes, probably just for stud. And even in that process, or if you're selling him, you have to transport him, you have to load him. Mm -hmm. I think people just use brute force, you know, to move him and transport him and handle him. And he just set himself in a frame of mind where they're using force. I'm going to use force preemptively. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, horses, as you know, are by so- are social by nature. It's just not natural for them yeah. to be that shut off, that aggressive, that violent. I think he just learned it. It was a learned behavior. Yeah, I, I was surprised that, um, of course, I-, I heard, I think I read where he was gelded in his 12th year and that mm-hmm. his behavior was set, of course, at that point, which I think people can understand that. Um, but yet being captured by the BLM, uh, it, maybe I misunderstood that I thought they always gelded them when they adopted them. You know, they do. And and interestingly enough, if you were to look at his documentation, he's registered as, as gelded. So mm-hmm. the funny thing is, it's not the first time I've seen that where BLM uh-huh. often comes out with something on the papers that says gelded or, or something else to that effect. Um, he was, whether it was uh, just a documentation error or whether um, it was an oversight or you, you never know, you never know with the, with the adoption program, but he was definitely a stallion. And at that age, it was, he was gelded to try and, you know, get rid of the behaviors he had. But certainly at that age, the gelding yeah. isn't going to change any of that. Yeah. And I thought you, you might say, cause I read somewhere where there's like a three strikes out, which then those Mustangs are, um, almost always um, meat wagon victims, um, yep. which shocked me. Is that right? It's correct. It's it's the Burns rider. Um, it, it came after, well after the original law in 1971. And it was kind of, we discussed it in the book, in fact, and it was kind of slipped yeah. through at the end of the session in Congress and it passed through. And up to that point, uh, you basically, there was no sale authority. And then they invoked this three strikes rule, which means that if the Mustang has three strikes against it and and has gone through the program, um, basically there's sale authority on the horse. And theoretically under the law, the wild horses cannot be sold. They can be adopted out under a probationary period, which means that the BLM can monitor you. They can show up at your residence. I don't personally know of any instances where that happens, but legally all that is in place. Mm-hmm. With the three strikes rule, you can go and purchase a horse and that's it. It's yours. Title is yours. There's no oversight. There's no issue. And really, as we as we go through in the book, it just created this horrific scenario where mm-hmm. suddenly these federally protected Mustangs are being sold outright and, and going straight from the sale onto a truck and, and on the slaughter um, domestically before we, you know, no longer had the slaughterhouses domestically, but still Canada and Mexico are certainly viable options, as we all know. Mm-hmm. It is amazing that Samson never ended up on a truck slaughter, my yeah. position has always been that people were looking to make money off his ability as a stallion, and that was it. That was I guess. That kept them alive. Yeah. Yes, they just treated him like a wild animal forever. Never, mm-hmm. never seemed to have any intention of, of helping gentle him. So you describe him. Let's get into Sam's because he's such a wonderful, wonderful personality. Or you know, you've developed a wonderful personality on paper. I can't imagine how cute he must be now. But um, you've described him through the book. I saw a thinker, a strategist, a warrior a refugee, a beast, an iconic American Mustang, Napoleon, 
you've referred to him so many things, but he ends up just being um, yours. Uh, you know, I can't say it any better. Uh, what What do you think that process was like for him? What did he think about you? I, I think it's traumatic. I think it was traumatic. I think to some extent, it's still traumatic. I don't. I don't think, you know, if we could talk to our animals, I think if someone could sit down and interview Samson, he'd be like, I'm not his. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, no, no one, you know, has rights to him. And I think that's the way it should be. I think that, yeah. you know, all of those adjectives that, you know, you just went through, it's, it's fascinating because um, I think, you know, the one thing that I, I like most about him, and I think it's all of us, is he's imperfect, right? He's not perfect. Mm-hmm. You so many mm-hmm. times read stories or see movies where the, animal or the person or the character is perfect. Samson is not perfect, right? He certainly has baggage from being abused. He has mm-hmm. baggage from being a captured BLM Mustang. Mm-hmm. He has baggage from being locked up, you know, for how many years. Um, but there are certainly elements of his, you know, personality that just have to do with him. You know, mm-hmm. he's tough. He can be aggressive. He doesn't like to be told what to do. Um, so he's not perfect. You know, there are certainly days where he does something that is somewhat troublesome and you say, wow, that's the post-traumatic stress, you know, in him. And then there are days when you're just like, that's Samson, you know. <laughs> um, I think for him, I think the process was necessary. I think that he needed something. I think the only reason why we got somewhere with him is because he was so alone and so shut off that he wanted something. But then there was a part of him that said, anyone walking upright on two legs is a threat to my well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think that we struggled with that and struggled and struggled over the course of the book covers, you know, a year, you know, almost two years of the process. It was a constant struggle and you could see it in him. There were days where he was torn. There were days where like he'd start to come to me and then he'd run off. And this wasn't day one. This is, you know, weeks, months into the process. He's so traumatized and he's so ingrained with certain type of thoughts. Um, I, I think it was a very hard process for him to make you know, sort of to, to straighten everything out in his head of, is this person a threat? Is this person not a threat? Mm-hmm. And you would get somewhere with him and you think you're advancing and then you would come back three days later and you'd be like, no, 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 I thought about it and I'm not on board for this. Mm-hmm. And it was that constant struggle. So, you know, for everything I went through and the ups and downs, which we, you know, readily admit, and that can be the case when you're training any animals, there are lots of ups and lots of downs. I think it was pretty severely traumatic for him to try and figure it all out. And I think the important thing is, you know, we let them figure it out, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. when you train any animal, you have to let them come to that decision on their own. Samson had to come to the decision that it was going to be okay. I certainly was not going to force it on him. And you know what? He wasn't going to let me force it on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had said one point that his prison wasn't, it was at first uh, literally like bars because he was in that small little, I think you described it as a milking shed <laughs> just a small right, little correct. stall yeah uh, but but that it was really a mental prison um even after you let him out into the pasture and you got him out of this such a confined space he still had a mental prison about it and that seems to be what you're describing now is um those bars just kept going up um even when he wanted to let them down and it's horrible you know it really is it really um, it speaks to any abuse. It doesn't have to be a horse. I, I think that obviously the book tries to make points about the evils of abuse. And yeah, parallels. Uh, it was mm-hmm. it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. You know, like I said, we made in the book. It's funny because uh, you know the book literally is just a retelling of my diary, right? So mm-hmm. um, even now, when people ask questions, um, I sort of flinch at times when people ask something because it brings back a memory for me mm-hmm. um, that's hard because it's like you. 
you make strides, you're excited, you're like, okay, there's hope here, you know, hope, 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 free of hope. And then something happens and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, what did they do to him? Yeah. You know, that it just, he just can't get out of his mind. And I think, you know, the message there is that abuse takes a toll, especially chronic abuse. Yeah. And you get to a point where you're not going to rewrite that book so easily. Um, and it is heartbreaking. But on the other hand, you have an animal that made every effort to say, well, gee, I don't like where I am in life right now. And I realize, you know, that this may be a better, this may be an opening for me and I'm going to try and take it, but it's not going to be so easy. So um, it is horrible to try and even picture what any animal goes through, you know, abuse wise. But certainly Samson, it, we, you know, the fact that his body is scarred all over. Mm-hmm. And not from fights with other wild horses. They're scarred from ropes and whips and everything like that. I think that's a pretty good indicator of what his existence was like. Let's shift to you a little bit. I know that you rode your first horse at seven years old, I think. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And and you always kept your dream, even though 19, 20 years as an attorney at the point of the book, um, you got back into horses. You started training horses or after school, you got back into horses, started training horses. Did it? Did you always feel like you had a strong fortitude for rescuing horses? Is that something unique to you? Or do you feel like, oh, anybody could do it if they just um, have a dream big enough? I, I, I think that um, certainly to, to some extent anybody could do it. I think for me it sort of kind of fell in my lap. I, when I was younger, I was what somewhat maybe clueless and naive and would take whatever people brought to me. And that was always the, the worst hard cases. And I think even in the, in the acknowledgments in the book, I say, you know, to all the horses that could have put me down and finished me off and didn't, you know, thank you. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, those hard cases sort of f- fell in my lap. And in the beginning, maybe I fumbled through and learned from them. Um, I, I think that there's, there's a certain point you cross, a certain line you cross where maybe people wouldn't have the skills to work with uh, an abused horse and, you know, they're animals that can kill you. They can kill you by accident. They can kill you on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and things can go wrong. So I, I, I think that um, people can certainly rescue horses. People can, you know, bring a horse in that needs a home. A lot of the work that I do is with people like that who take in horses and say, well, I'll take the horse in from this agency, but I don't have the skills to rehab it. Um, so I, I think that anyone can do it. I think that more so people can train their horses if they're not, you know, abused or troubled. Um, I think all of us can work with our horses and that doesn't mean that we need the help of a professional trainer. But I always think that there's a line that you cross where certain things happen or you see certain things where it's good to get help. Mm -hmm. And certainly with the internet these days, um, everyone has resources at their fingertips that, you know, weren't available years ago. Mm -hmm. For me, I think it was um, just the personality and maybe the patience and the um, ability to read the horses well that I think sort of put me in that category of helping horses like this. I think that, um, skills are one thing. I think that, um, to some extent, uh, anyone who really works with horses has to have some ability of observation and mm-hmm. understanding and empathy all kind of bunched in together. Cause I think that, um, far too many people, when they work their horses or train their horses, they use too much, right? I think less is more. I think that mm-hmm. body language and, and the way you move and the way you interact gets you a lot farther. And I think that those not everyone has that. That doesn't mean that they can't develop it. But I think that a lot of people, when they work with their horses, think um, more is more. And I mm-hmm. think it should be less is more. Mm-hmm. You do a good job in the book of not anthropomorphizing. You know, not it's a fine line, isn't it, when it's just you talking um, about a horse to not is, sort of put is. human terms. Yeah, yeah uh, but, I think it's, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you, so 
you said somewhere where the horse recognized goodness in your heart, perhaps, and that's why he spared you in the in the first moment you met him. Uh, and he did; it did seem to spare you. He could have he could have taken you out at that point. Um, it, but but seeing goodness in your heart, it's a it's a little close to. I think it was your hope, maybe, that he saw the goodness in your heart. But uh, but reconcile that for me, if you can. Yeah, I think I, I think it's probably wishful thinking. I, I think what it more is is I think that I, I think that any of us who work with animals or even own animals, I think that we all would agree. I would hope that they sort of sense something, right? I mean, if you come home and you've had a bad day and your dog sort of runs away from you, that's sort of they're sensing something, right? Like mm-hmm. you know. Or maybe you come in and they lick your face incessantly and they're just, you know, being abundantly happy. Maybe again, they notice you have a bad day. Mm-hmm. I think that they sense these things. They really do. I think they sense the energy. I think they sense the vibe. It's not anything on some, you know, they're reading our mind type of level and the stars are aligned. I think, I think there's a body language. I think mm-hmm. there's a vibe they get. And I think with Samson, I don't think I came to him in any type of physical posturing. There was no remote sense of aggression or offensive behavior on my part. And I think that everyone certainly brought that to the table with him. I mean, right? It's like if you you get on a horse that has been told, you've been told it's going to buck, you're going to brace. Well, if you brace, you're probably going to make the horse brace, right? That's real basic. (laughs) It's the same thing with Samson. I think that everyone walked up to him, whether good intention or bad. Maybe there were people with good intentions at some point, but they walked up to him with, you know, a certain agenda or what they had been told to expect. Mm -hmm. And I don't do that. And I think it was interesting to him. I think it sort of got his attention. Like, oh, you're not afraid of me. You're not being mean to me. You're not being physical with me. Like, what's your deal? You Mm -hmm. know, this is sort of different. Yeah, we have... um at Flag is at Farms, uh, where my dad trains, we have a thing called the IFA Gentling Facility. And I think you'd be fascinated to see it because later on in the book, you talk about him being socialized. Samson's finally socialized a little bit, which is um, so helpful, isn't it? When they, I mean, it wasn't helpful to you in the first place, but, <laughs> but, but uh, because it was distracting. But, but in, the, um, in, in this Gentling Facility, we have a chute that becomes their safety zone, but we always put him in two by two. And I think Samson saw something in you perhaps that felt like until that halter came over the stall wall, that you were different than, than others. And there was something worthy of trust until he heard that helicopter. I don't want to give too much away, but, but, you know, I I just, I loved how you, um, you were completely respectful of his body language and it is their body language, isn't it? It's their recognized language. Another thing I wanted to ask you too is um, you, you mentioned early on in the book that you prefer working in a, a, a I think you said 60 foot round pin and just a line in your hand. How come I, I don't remember reading ever where you got Samson in a round pen? No, we just, you know, we're very limited. This was, this whole situation literally came of one individual um, trying to get him out of the conditions in the middle of winter after barn fire. So he ended up at a facility, um, which was not a facility. It was not a training facility. It was not a boarding facility. It was literally a homeowner who had an empty barn, and there were no resources. And certainly no one, myself included, was about to load Samson up mm-hmm. on a trailer. Um, mm-hmm. It just wasn't yeah. in the car. It was really working where he's at. It's a, a secluded property. And it was taken where he's at and the owner didn't want him removed and the owner didn't want those things done because he was a liability threat. You know, there was always the issue of who's he going to hurt. He, he hasn't had hurt people. 
So it was really, here's the, here's the platform you're working on, take it or leave it. And that meant doing things that we wouldn't normally teach or preach, you know, where we tie in, where we work them, that type of stuff. You know, he had the access to a 200 yard pasture. That's not exactly conducive to me establishing some mm-hmm. form of pressure on mm-hmm. a horse when he's got 200 yards to run to. No, that's uh, a lot of work for you. <laughs> yeah. A lot of miles to put in. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I applaud you for that alone. No, no facility to uh, to really get up and and be able to desensitize at all before yeah. even getting into the the firing zone. But so right. so, um, have you ever seen have you seen this new documentary that's out called Unbranded? I have. I have seen it. It was well, uh, yeah, good. It was it, you know it's a great showcase for the for the power of the Mustang. I think that it it shows that uh, these are amazing animals. Um, and, and I, I think that they have so much potential. They're, they're different. This is nothing, no takeaway from our domestic horses. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the wild horses are different and their thinking is different and their genetics are different. And really anything you put to them, uh, is, is in the cards, you know, it's on the table. It's right there. You know, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I'm not the, necessarily the best at it, right? I, yeah. I, you know, it was interesting after my book was done, I, I did go and I read Shy Boy. And one of the most telling things uh-huh. in the book was that um, I, I remember that when the horse would transfer to one of the neighbors and and the issue was, why is the neighbor so interested? And it was, well, he's not the strongest, he's not the fastest, but he's got yeah. the heart, Yeah, you know, that's right. and that's what my experience is with the Mustangs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not big horses. That's not mean that they're, you know, not as good or anything like that, but they have a heart that says, you know, I want to do this, Yeah. you know, and in Samson's case, it not only was the heart to sort of, you know, restart his life, but it was also sort of the, the heart to say, I'm not going to let that ruin me. You know, uh-huh. he wasn't beaten down and ruined when I found him. He was anything but that. He wasn't yeah. a cowering horse who said, you know, I'm done and my spine's broken. You know, mm-hmm. it was, you respect me and you understand me. It wasn't, yeah. you know, I'm broken and I have no, you know, I have nothing to look forward to. Yeah, at 12 years old, that you're right. That is absolutely unusual. And and that is the heart of the Mustang right there too. That's I think that's how they survived 50 million years and and uh and it, it, you know, somebody should read the book alone for the history of the horse that you put in there. I think that's it's probably one of the better um comprehensive descriptions of the horse's uh, history that I've ever seen. So people should read the book oh, for thank that. You. Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. It was it was great to have it all in one spot like that. It remembered everything about Xenophone and everything. It was great. That took a so, year. That took a year oh, to compile. And, and exactly. you always, you know, in the process, wonder if you're sort of chasing your tail and how people are going to respond. But I think that in the case of the Mustang, you have to do it because so much of the debate centers around the history yeah. and how we categorize them and what protections we put on them that to really understand the sort of platform of the book, which is you know, read the facts and make your own conclusions about the program and what's uh-huh. going on. You have to give people the facts going all the way back of this is how they got here. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's great yeah. to hear that people and people enjoy it and, and don't say, God, it bored me to death and I fell asleep. Or, oh, not at all. No, everybody should read. Everybody should know all those things about horses if you love horses. So read it for that alone. But what was your goal for the reader in writing this book? Michael, I think there was definitely, it was, it was multifaceted. It was, when writing it, it was always kind of keeping the eye on the ball of what were my points, you know, am I, am I, you know, falling astride of all that? And I think that, um, the, the book definitely has messages about abuse that could be for any animal. Um, and, and the evils of abuse. I, I definitely think that there's also, 
um, a component of the book about the proper ways to train horses and, and what's improper and um, some of the ideas behind the proper ways and, and how to understand what your horse is doing and what message the horse is giving you. And then certainly there's no question that the book, you know, makes a platform for the wild horse and, and where their future is headed and maybe not headed. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then of course, I think that there's themes in the book that um, overriding things that we can all relate to, which doesn't make it a horse book. It makes it a book for people. And that is there, there are concepts of hope and redemption and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, being damaged, but not really being damaged and working with that. And, and looking past it and moving on. And I think mm. that, yes, maybe Samson is damaged in the book, but I think that the book speaks to um, how how you can work with someone like that and how someone like that can sort of animal or person, you know, rewrite their history and get a new mm. start. Great. That is a great message. And I did get that as well. So you hit the goal with me. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, Mitch, I loved having you on. I've I've kept you long enough. I know you've got another thing to run to. Um, so I would love to have you back sometime and uh, hear about the next book coming out. You going to write another one? Oh, you never know. We definitely have had <laughs> uh, that question come up. I I would only write another one if I could, you know, feel that I would be just as proud of it as I am of okay. Samson's story. So hopefully, but, but thank you so much for having us and for saying such kind things about the book. Absolutely. Thank you, Mitchell Bornstein, author of Last Chance Mustang, the story of one horse, one horseman, and one final shot at redemption. Um, we're really excited because Sean's Omega Fields company has done something amazing for one of our test horses. His name is Cadillac. And we felt so strongly about it that um, we definitely wanted to bring him on as a sponsor of Horsemanship Radio. And we wanted you to know that it came in that um, order first, is that we were so impressed with this product and with this horse's results that we wanted to have him a part of our um, our monthly shows. What is it about the Omega Fields product? Something's different. Omega Fields uh, was built around a really um, unique and proprietary technology. Flaxseed has been known for a long time to contain rich source of omega-3 fatty acids along with omega-6 and omega-9 fatty acids in, in a near-perfect balance. But historically, there was a problem using it. It's high in fat, and when it was uh, milled into a feed product or a food product, it, it would go rancid very quickly. So our company had developed a proprietary technology for stabilizing this high-fat flaxseed to make it usable, uh, give it a long shelf life in a natural uh, environment. We don't use any chemicals or additives to extend the shelf life or anything like that. It's a completely natural process. That's what makes our flax really different. Um, It makes it usable. It makes it nutritious over a long period of time. We guarantee an 18-month shelf life, so Consumers can use it with confidence without it going rancid that, you know, would potentially harm the horse. So quality of manufacture, every single thing in that uh, product, Omega Horse Shine, is food grade. It's made at a food grade facility with great care of product quality. Uh, The stabilization technology makes that Omega-3 nutritional value locked in and usable for a long period of time. So proof is in the pudding, so to speak, that it it really works. You'll see dramatic results in a fairly short period of time. 
Bob Baffert just achieved the greatest accomplishment in racing by training the thoroughbred American Pharaoh, winning the 2015 Belmont Stakes and capping the third jewel in the elusive Triple Crown. The first to do so in 37 years. Bob has trained four Kentucky Derbies winners and six Preakness Stakes winners and two each of the Belmont Stakes and the Kentucky Oaks winners. This year, Bob and American Pharaoh won the 140. 41st Kentucky Derby, bringing his total number of victories in the Derby to four. When American Pharaoh won the 2015 Belmont Stakes, the win was the fourth attempt at a Triple Crown for Mr. Baffert, and then American Pharaoh became the first Triple Crown champion to win the Breeders' Cup Classic with a wire-to-wire win on October 30th at Keeneland. American Pharaoh is one of the leading contenders for Sports Illustrated's 2015 Sportsman of the Year because there is no other display of horsemanship in 2015 that came close to what owner Ahmad Zayad and Bob Baffert did with American Pharaoh. Well, welcome, Bob Baffert. I'm excited to have you on Horsemanship Radio on the Horse Radio Network, and we feel very privileged. It's been an exciting year. Um, it's been a very exciting year, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I don't know if you'll remember this. I love when people start with those lines. But we met on the day that um, Dad, Monty Roberts, was racing a six-year-old Sabiango who had just won the Charles Winningham Memorial Handicap at Hollywood Park. And uh, that day, there was a young jockey named Tyler Bays up top. I don't remember that. That's you're going you're going back now. But I remember that was the most that was a beautiful horse. He was from I think he was from Germany or yep. something. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. He was a really nice horse, beautiful horse, and um, I remember uh, Tim Yakteen, who's um, who was helped get him ready for me. He, I, I give him most of the credit there because he did all the work with him, my assistant. Yes, yeah, he was he was uh, very pleased that day. It was a great win, and it was you know Charles Winningham had a warm place in our heart too. So that whole thing was a um, a nice triumph. But um, I, I want to get into. Uh, it's the Christmas season here, and we have we are uh, in the midst of a radiothon, and we're doing some things to give some prizes away. And you and your wife Jill have donated to several charities, and I just want to honor you in that. Um, following the American Pharaoh's Triple Crown Triumph, I know that you guys have committed. You donated fifty thousand dollars, some crazy number like that, to the, uh, charities like Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance and the California Retirement Aftercare account and the permanently disabled jockey fund old friends one of my favorites old friends farm in kentucky too i really i appreciate you doing that you and jill for your commitment to giving back well you know this this business has been so good to us and so we just felt you know if you can if you can afford to do it we're in a position where well we want to give back and um and those, you know, these the horse organizations, you know, we need to be re- more responsible. Back when I was growing up, you know, we really didn't think about things like that. Now it's like, um, it's it's like the main topic in our industry. You know, we have to take care of these these horses when they're done, you know, off the racetrack. So I, it's really working out. Well, there's some really good farms out there, and these these horses are finding homes. And it's pretty difficult these days to find homes for them, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're just glad to be part of it. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing that. I know that um, that's really been keen in the list of things that people like to see grow in the industry. So thanks for being a leader in that and making that commitment. Yeah, I, I know you grew up 
on a family farm, like 240 acres near the Mexican border in Arizona with seven children. Is that right? Yes, it was in Nogales, Arizona. Grew up like three miles north of the border. Wow. And, um, it's been very, uh, it was it was a great experience going up on a ranch and um, going up around horses, cows, chickens, and, um, you know, we, at a young age, we were all giving responsibilities uh, to care for the animal. So you really, you learn a lot, you know, when you, you know, when you're responsible for animals at a young age, you learn, you know, how to deal with them because if you don't feed them, they're not going to get fed. So it 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 was a great learning experience. Yeah, well, your parents must have been amazing. Do you? It's Bill and Ellie, is what I read. And do you still have them? Are they still with we, us? No, they're not with us. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, they passed a few years ago, and that's why I was very, I was very emotional during the old Triple Crown run because, you know, I was, it was sort of sad that they weren't around to see it. And um, my mother, you know, she always told me I was going to win the Triple Crown, and oh, yeah. uh, they were there for the other one. But um, it was. Um, that's the only thing I just wish they hadn't been around to, to see it, but I'm sure they were watching from above. I, I think so. Yeah. Felt they were sort of helping out. I think so. I, I like to think that 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 whole they're still with us uh, that way. If they felt that that was a real dream, how is it growing up with seven children in a in the Baffert family? Is were you all into the horses and and the animals? Well, we um, <clears throat> when there's seven of us and. Um, and our television kept on, we had this antenna, I remember, out in the fields, and the cows kept knocking it down. <laughs> so sometimes we didn't have television for long periods of time. So we had to entertain ourselves. So we entertained each other, the uh, middle children. I was number four. So I usually hung out with my number five brother. And so uh, we just found ways to, when you're on a ranch, you can go out and do whatever you want. And, Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents would take us to Mission Beach for the summers and drop us off and go back to work. And he he worked really hard. My parents really mm-hmm. worked hard. So um, mm-hmm. I, we we got we had a great childhood. I, we we grew up the right way. And he, you know, my father taught us uh, from a young age the responsibility. You have to be very responsible, and that's really stuck to me all these years. Mm-hmm. And you have a strong work ethic, and you seem to have imparted that to the people that were around you that work too, which is great. I think that's why you're you're highly respected. Um, I, I don't know anybody that's dealt with animals to the length of a career as yours that isn't a, a strong doesn't have a strong work ethic. So um, I'm sure you're passing that on to Bodie. Am I right? Well, hopefully, you know, when yeah. you uh, grow up around animals in a ranch, it's seven days a week, so when you're used to something like that, it's not, you know, a lot of people, they want to take the weekends off, and mm-hmm. I don't know if Bodie wants to be a horse trainer. He wants to be, um, he wants to be a meteorologist and work uh, giving out weather. He's really into weather. He's just, matter of fact, after the Triple Crown, he had a, he did the weather with um, with the, the Weather Channel um he was Sam Champion, so that was pretty uh, cool. He was very excited about that. So with you and Bodie and Jill, are there any family holiday traditions that you remember from your time in your family that you've carried on now to these days? Uh, not really, because we were we, we do a lot of traveling now that we're um, 
Jill and Bodie, they we go to these races, and so we just sort of live a, I'd live a totally different life than I did when I was growing up. Um, you know, especially when you grow up in a quiet little town like Dongallis, Arizona, there's mm-hmm. not a lot to do. But now living in Southern California, it's just the hustle bustle, and it's a totally different style of living. And so um, I've adapted to Southern California the last 40 years I've been here. Mm. Well, you're invited to the farm. Anytime you want to come up to Flag Us Up Farms, we actually have a lot of old holiday. If you, if you want any old traditions, we, we generally have a house full. I don't remember a time when we didn't have a bunch of different accents happening, languages going on. It's, it's quite hustle and bustle. So that week after Christmas, you guys are officially invited to come and just chill if you need a place. I was actually, we went there with my father one time. We were... We had some quarter. I started out with quarter horses, and we. Mm-hmm. I remember we were breeding a quarter horse that was, a, I think, Cardiff Dead Farm had a quarter mm-hmm. horse. It's some, somewhere around there, and I remember we drove into the Flags Up Farm, and um, we. I remember briefly. This is I was like fifteen, oh, wow. sixteen years old, and I, I remember uh, going there, and um, I remember. There was a horse in a in a in a round pen there or something. I forget the name of the horse, but uh, it's quite impressive because coming from Nogales and seeing a farm uh-huh. like that was uh, I hadn't I'd never seen anything like that. But I, I remember vaguely. I remember being there and uh, going to that, that that area is so beautiful up there. Yeah, it is, and it's not that far, Bob. You're only a couple hours. Uh, Sean and and Kim McCarthy come up quite a bit, and uh, I think they eventually want to retire there. So come check it out for them, so you have you know some uh, point of reference for them. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I believe you were a race jockey in your teens. Is that right? Well, I really, I you know what I was always considered. I, when people talk about it, that they say I remember when you were trying to ride. So no, oh, nice. Never. <laughs> to jockey so I was just I was trying to I I won like 25 races quarter horse races and it was fun mm-hmm. uh, the, I was I was too tall I was too big my, the weight was really yeah it's so it was, tough it was hard for me and but yeah I enjoyed it for a little bit I wanted to um, to me I wanted that sort of that was going to be my identity and coming out of high school I wanted to be a jockey so bad I, I wanted to be like Bobby Adair, the great quarter horse jockey, and uh, but he was I was I I, I found out pretty within the year that um, that it was not going to be me. I was, I was not going to be that kind of jockey. So I he, he actually Bobby Adair told me one time that I needed to quit. But I didn't I didn't think I was going to be that good. So I quit immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you did pretty well on the training side of it anyway, so I, I guess we're lucky that you got too big. We'll, we'll take well, that. It was, that. it was either train horses or, or get a real job, so yeah. I train horses. <laughs> really glad you stayed with that. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't miss asking you a few questions about your training abilities. Your dad said that you always had I, – I read – where he was quoted as saying that you always had something special with horses and um, that you you read them well, you work with them well. And, uh, you know, I've lived long enough to see that champions make champions generally because their horses love them. And I read quotes that you had said, too, that um, you love your horses and that um, if you love your horses, they respond. Uh, so you have to love your horse. So tell me about 
um, American Pharaoh. I mean, every champion has something special and unique between his trainer and him, I think. And so what's something about American Pharaoh that makes that relationship special for you? He was, American Pharaoh was, um, when he first came, he was a little bit rambunctious. He was wanting to do too much. He was wanting to be, he wanted to go too fast, too early. So you had to work with him to quiet him down a little bit. And um, his first race was sort of disastrous. He, um, he got to the, the, the paddock. He was just a mess. He was He really wasn't handling it well. Uh, with the blinkers, he was tough in the warm-up um, with the pony. Going to the gate, he got in the gate. He tried to act up in the gate. Broke, stepped slow, made the lead, then just stopped. And just it was just a bad out. And, you know, just not a good experience for him. And I was really, I was really disappointed because I really thought, you know, he was. We were hoping he was the next coming. We're always hoping that we're going to have the next right. uh, big horse. And uh, I've been fortunate to have all these big horses, so we're uh, disappointed is out. But then after that, we decided, we took the blankets off, we schooled him a lot, and we noticed that he was um, he was real sensitive to sound. Mm-hmm. I remember we were schooling him in the morning, and it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, walking over to Del Mar, and somebody turned on a tractor, mm-hmm. um, and he just spooked. He just the noise got him, so we decided to put some cotton in his ears, maybe try mm-hmm. him with that. And then from then on, he was very quiet. It was it was just it pacified him somehow. And um, so I eventually got these little earplugs that I ordered online, these little sheepskin earplugs <laughs> for mm-hmm. like six ninety five. Really? <laughs> and um, he's made eight million dollars of those earplugs. Well. So it was pretty good. <laughs> It was a good investment. Uh, I can see it now. Bob Baffert earplugs. You get to endorse those things. <laughs> you know what? Well, I got it. Somebody asked me the other day. I got a call from some guy. Had a some. There's some friend that was a barrel racer and mm-hmm. her horses needs some kind of plugs. Want to know what kind I use? So they want to know what my secret plugs yeah. were. Like, <laughs> it's just easy. Just on the web there, you can buy them. Um, yeah, behavioral genius. Now. Oh, they've dropped. Yeah, well, the use of them has gone up, so it's a quantity thing. I actually tried. I, I, I contacted the people who make them. I said, I just want you to realize that this horse, Triple Crown horse, is mm-hmm. using your earplugs like, you know, so they at least, but they yeah. just really said, oh, thanks. It's good oh, thanks. <laughs> no biggie. Uh, I have no idea. Well, what I loved about that you said, I think this is what you want to see in every thoroughbred, that he always looks like he's having fun out there. And you talk about his ears twitching. And I just love hearing that because that means everybody's in your team is doing something right. You're, you're feeding him well. He's he's fit. And um, they can't they can't be having fun if not everything's put together. So I, I appreciate you bringing that champion on like that. And that you said every time you run him, he shows a new dimension were those dimensions behavioral, or was it that he was just stronger each time? Well, you know what? He really changed physically from January to March. His he got his body he got longer. He came mm-hmm. told he was like a short coupled horse, had a short back, and then he got longer. In the last two months, he grew up, stretched out, and um, but his stride is what really mm-hmm. set him apart. His, his 
his mechanics, his, his fluids dried. Mm-hmm. Really, he jumped a long way, and he did it without really having to work at it. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was quick. He was quick on his feet. And so, but he had a he he had a great he's got a great mind. Um, he had a nice, smart head. He's got a soft eye. He's just a mm-hmm. very and a sweet, loving horse. He was mm-hmm. he would put your head in your lap. He was spoiled rotten. He was. Uh, <laughs> he's one of those like when you brought him out and you go to take him back to the stall. He did not want to go back to the stall. He wanted to stay out yeah. there and enjoy it a little bit longer and. And he was just, he was pretty pampered and spoiled, but um, when he came down to training, he really enjoyed training. And I think that's very important for these horses. Mm-hmm. They have to enjoy what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you could tell when he got out there and galloped or if he breathed, he had those ears forward, you know, happy. When you see those ears clicking forward, you know your horse is happy. And um, and every time we worked him, um, he never had a bad work. He always had a really good work, and so um, it's very rare. Sometimes you'll breeze a horse, and you'll you won't be happy with it. He was always there was never a bad work. He was just mm-hmm. spot on every time we breeze him. Yeah, yeah. No, and everybody says that about him that he is just such a sweet horse too. But good to hear that from the athletic side too. So, are you guys doing anything together at Christmas time? You going out to Kentucky or um, anything traditional that way? Uh, for Thanksgiving, um, we're going. My wife is from um, near Nashville, Tennessee, so we go there mm-hmm. for Thanksgiving and spend a few days there. And, and uh, then I have some horses running at Churchill Downs. We might go watch run on the day after Thanksgiving. So, um, okay. it, it never ends. But just the horse racing, it's just once you do this, you and you, when you're at this level, you just have to stay close to it at all times. That's nice. You know, it's just part of the, being in this business. You, it's just, it's, it's never ending. As you yeah. know, as your dad knows, you just cannot, I just, it's hard for me to get away. That's nice. Well, that's great. That means you love it. And that means the horses will continually be loved. And we're real happy about that. And really happy that you had such a great year and, I appreciate the fact that you've had such breakthrough moments too um, with the Grand Slam now, and and we just uh, wish you a long, happy career now. Don't quit on us now because you you're just warming up. So I appreciate you being here today. Well, every year when I've had a good year, I've always thought, well, how can I ever top this? <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, <laughs> how are we going to top this? You know, it's like maybe we find some way, um, but just. Just to be able to compete at this level, and I've been in for a while, and I've been really fortunate and blessed to have these good horses, and and to be able to look forward, and hopefully you'll have another Kentucky Derby winner down the line or something. Just to, because it really the, the, the racing purebreds it brings people together. I've, I've met a lot of people through this. Um, um, I've been invited to do things like last night we went to the, it's called the Golden Goggles where the U.S. swim team, the best swimmers, they got their awards and I got to present an award. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it opens up, you get to do things that I never really imagined doing. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. The, the, the Faro Tour has been quite exciting. Yeah, the Faro Tour. It has 
been amazing, both you and the Zayats. I, I appreciate the all the feelings that we've seen come out of that whole experience in that team. Such a such a class act you all are. Well, I think that horse was a class act. He he just made us really appreciate uh, things that we we didn't we missed before. And when you have a horse of that that greatness, I think he really he, he makes you think differently, and he makes you before. I always went in with, I won a big race. Well, I felt like, well, I did that, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it was different. It was, um, you know, we have a great horse and he was doing things. Uh, my job was to make sure I didn't mess it up. I, <laughs> I had this, this great, this gorgeous animal who was smart and sweet and intelligent. And I just wanted to make sure I just kept him happy, uh, try to manage him the best I could. And, um, and he was he was he was great to us, and it was mm-hmm. he's he's going to be missed, but he's got a great career in front of him. But um, mm-hmm. there, I don't know, if, you know, we always we're always looking for that one horse in our lifetime that's going to really make a difference, and and he was that horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Dad's statement was when he finds one that he really has done well with. He said he just felt like he was in the presence of greatness. Um, there's an aura that they give all confidence. So. But, you know, we all, every trainer, we all dream that, you know, we want the next secretariat, mm-hmm. you know, flu, whatever. And I've had some good horses, and I I thought Point Given was a, was a great horse. He mm-hmm. usually won the Triple Crown. I missed the Triple Crown a few times. But, you know, sometimes we use the word great, you know, a little loosely, like, oh, he's a great horse. But they're all, to me, they're all great. But mm-hmm. this guy was special. He was just something that um, uh, I just, you know, I just, it was totally, um, he did things that I've never seen other horses do. And, um, and he did it with such ease and with such grace that he was pretty, I, I, I watched him run as a fan, uh, when mm-hmm. he turned for home. I, I never hardly, I never rooted him on. I just watched. And so <laughs> he was just, I was watching awe. And so to think that a horse of that caliber is actually, in your barn, and you get to see him every day. It was quite—it's—it's uh, it's a, it's a magical feeling, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to really until they're gone. Then you say, "Boy, I miss that guy," you know. But mm-hmm. uh, just just to be to be lucky enough to have a horse of that of that quality was—I'm mm-hmm. just uh, really feel very very lucky. Well, that's that's awesome. The the harder you work, the luckier you get. I know, but I know what you mean, and it's it's blessed. I I totally agree with you. I appreciate you giving us this time. It's um, a crazy year, and you uh, could put your time in a lot of different places instead of us. So, thank you again for being our guest today, and I hope thanks we get to talk me. to you down the road. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Bob Baffert. Right. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. Watch world's champions give their lessons. Join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse, too. Jamie Jennings, I am so glad to reach you by phone on your farm. How are you? I am doing good. I'm having, you may hear some 
two-year-old crying or some chickens in the background. I can't I promise love it's it. going to be a smooth. <laughs> this is smooth not an official call. interview. We we. We actually kind of ambushed Jamie here today because we want to ask her and put her on the spot if she will help us out in 216. And I think all our listeners are going to love this idea. Um, We are going to start a new segment called Ask Monty because... Jamie has committed to being a student, um, and she's coming out to Flag Us Up Farms in 2016 and wants to know um, how to be a horse whisperer and how to get her certification and how to work with those Mustangs like she did last year, last summer in Gentling Wild Horse Course. And so, Jamie, I want to ask you if you, um, put you on the spot here, if you would like to be our segment for um, the Ask Monty Q&As. Now, what that means is, before you answer, <laughs> before you answer. <laughs> be careful, means, Jamie. Be very, very yeah. careful. Right, you have an out still. That means that people write in, I get probably about 100 questions a week from people all over the world that ask the craziest questions, but there's always a core need at the center of understanding the horse. Why does my horse do this? Why doesn't my horse do that? And Monty picks one. He gets, he has the ultimate choice. He picks the ones that are the most broadly educational and then he answers them. Have you, have you looked at those before, Jamie? Have you ever seen those we post? It's my favorite email I get every week. It's the Ask Monty. Oh, well, great. Great. Okay. So you kind of know the format. So what I need, I was looking for somebody who's a good student, um, who I knew was searching for the information. You're a seeker and would read those, uh, to us on every episode of Horsemanship Radio. Would you do that for us? You know what? Being a part of this show and being a part of that, any legacy of Monty Roberts is a total honor. I would absolutely do that. Are you kidding me? I get to like chat with you all the time, a couple times a month and, and read words that, um, the master has written. So of course. Oh, that's really nice. Well, the questions are often in broken English and <laughs> and kind of not the easiest stuff. So I had to get somebody who's really a good pro at this. So I really appreciate that. That's right. Nice words. And I think it'll be really interesting to, uh, to get people um, seeing the broad uh, array of questions. And, you know, sometimes it's like raising kids, right? You know, you think you're the, you're an island, right? Nobody could have gone through this massive education of, of having a child, but everybody out there did it. And you just don't want to feel like an Island. So people come up with these questions and they feel like only their horse, you know, was probably this, this issue. It was either them or their horse. And it's not, you know, everybody has these, these things that they're working on. So does on. that mean that I can, that I can call Monty and ask him how to get my two year old to stop crying before nap yeah. time? You could try. Two hours. He's pretty good with kids too. I have to say, I don't know if you knew this, but we had, like, we had 47 foster kids growing up too. So, um, there was a lot of kids through the house. So he might have a two year old trick. Most of them were like, you know who I should call. I could call your mama. Yeah, you're right about that. (laughs) My mama would be a better, actually, a resource for you. (laughs) Yeah, and most of these kids were teenagers. So, you know, um, you got to get there first. But but go ahead. Go ahead, Jamie. Oh, no. I just, uh, of course, it would be an absolute honor to be a part of this segment. And um, I, I, I thank you for asking me. 
Good. Well, we're rolling that out for 2016. So you're going to hear a little bit of Ask Monty by a nighttime story by Jamie Jennings. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> maybe we should have some nice we should have some nice soothing bedtime story music at the beginning of it. It might help. Yeah. It might help that adrenaline. Start out with like Dear Monty. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Read it as it's written. I That's love good. it. I love the idea. I love that you know, it's just it's a different media. The people that maybe get the emails are not the same people that are on the university and those might not be the same people that listen to uh, your show. So you're kind of, you know, fortunately you're tying it all in together and, and making it all, you know, you're sharing the media within all of it. And all of it is to get Monty's words out there and let people know that they're, like you said, not an island. They're not alone. Other people have these problems and, you know, you can learn so much just by, just by hearing somebody else ask a question. And get the answer that you need. So I, I think it's a fantastic idea. And of course, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Thanks very much, Jamie. Okay, well, we'll be looking for you on Ask Monty in 2016. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, back at it. Up next, Lee Hansen gives us tips on loading on the trailer and pressure and release. Welcome back, Lee Hansen. We're privileged and honored to have you back. And I understand that you've uh, thought up a trainer's tip for us. We'd love to share you. I have, absolutely. You know, a lot of people, I, I watch them try to load these young horses in the trailer for the first time or get a horse into a stall that, that has never been into a stall or walk on concrete. And, and I watch these people literally have a tug of war with this horse. And, and you, you shoot yourself in the foot right off the bat when you do that. Horses uh, horses are, are naturally um, going to respond to pressure and release of pressure. And the biggest part I think that people miss is that release of pressure. And you can't drag a horse anywhere. And so when you're loading a horse in a trailer or you're holding them into a stall, it's okay to pull that lead rope tight and just hold it. Don't yank on it. Don't pull on it. Don't jerk on it. But just hold that firm pressure there. And the moment they shift their weight forward at all or move the tiniest bit, let that lead rope go and pet that horse. And I guarantee you that that horse will continue to make those small steps. It may not be as fast as you would like, but they will make those small steps and get in the trailer, go into the stall, walk across that concrete, whatever it would be. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for that tip. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. First, at Flagstaff Farms on January 9th is the Night of Inspiration. Fun, food, and conversations with Monty and Pat in their home. And a demonstration, too. And then Monty heads over to the pond over uh, March 5th, 11th, and 19th. He'll be in Kent and Cheshire and Dorset, England. So he's got three tour dates in England. And then he heads to Denmark for April 9th. He's got a demonstration in Willemsborg. And then on May 23 to June 3rd, he has his Gentling Wild Horses course, and that's the one that he did with Jamie Jennings so cool. uh, last summer. It so is cool. so fun. It's the most amazing thing. And then, of course, he'll be um, part of the Monty Special Training. He'll be teaching uh, the English portion, not the Portuguese portion, from July 20, 17 to 21 uh, this summer. And then he goes into his regular Monty Special Training August 
1st through 5th, 2016. Now, we have three more dates, though. March 19th through 20, join Pat Roberts' mom for the Wild at Heart weekend in uh, at Flagazette Farms in California. And March 21, there's a horse sense for leaders at Flagazette Farms. And then March 21 through 23, Monty is over in England meeting up with his certified instructors, our annual meetup. That's a whole bunch of dates. And if you didn't get all of that, you can go to MontyRoberts.com and there's a calendar right there. Or you can do it old school and give them a call at 805-688-6288 and you'll get an answer from a lovely, friendly, and helpful person at at Flag is Up Farms. And for details about today's show, you can go to HorsemanshipRadio.com where you'll find links to our guests, photos, and more information. And we do love to get your feedback, so please write us. You can follow on Facebook at Monty Roberts. So that you just go to Facebook.com slash Monty Roberts. And Monty is on Twitter. How about that? Mm-hmm. It's Monty underscore Roberts. And get the apps. You can carry around Horsemanship Radio and all the other shows on Horse Radio Network with you for your iPhone or Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. That's right. And many thanks to our sponsors, IFA.com. Monty Roberts University, and also Omega Fields. Be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. (laughs) 